Hello and welcome to the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. A healthy entrepreneur is someone who achieves business success whilst prioritising their physical and mental well-being. In other words, they understand the healthy hustle. They possess the ability to effectively manage their business operations, make strategic decisions and nurture their personal health and brand for sustainable growth and long-term success. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. How are you doing? How's the summer been? Yes, yes, very hot. Um, the last three or four weeks, you know, has been uh, very humid, to say the least. Um, and hopefully the next sort of few weeks into October, you know, the humidity is going to drop and then winter's finally here. But it hasn't stopped you getting out on the bike, you were saying, just before we started recording? Yeah, still coaching uh, four days a week, probably riding around 300 kilometres a week. Uh, what you were saying was a pretty slow pace, which I don't quite agree with. Well, don't tell my um, don't tell my members, <laughs> don't tell my clients. No, that, of course. You know they think they're all riding on Tour de France pace. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing yeah. to have you here. A very different story to one that we've had before on the podcast, and I really want to throw you in. We just heard from the intro a lot of your background, but I want to throw you in, and I'll take you back to 1990. So you're playing volleyball for Wales. It's your first taste of super competitive and pressurised sport. And I really want to understand from there, that point of view, you at that time, how did you cope with the pressure? How did it feel? What was your experience? Yeah, for me, I was selected to have a, a GB volleyball trial um, at the age of, you know, I was 20, 19, nearly 20 at the time. And I was six foot one and I was actually the shortest person, no way. you know, on the on the actual trial. And it was in Lillishaw, which is the Olympic training center in Shropshire, you know, in the UK near Telford. And uh, and yeah, it was an amazing experience for me. I'd never I'd never been selected, you know, to be instructed and coached at that level. But it gave me a great insight into what it's like to be coached and the benefits of being coached at that level. And the guy who actually had the job for the you know the GB volleyball team was a wonderful guy called Ralph Hippolyte. Great name. And Ralph actually took the Italian women to the Olympic volleyball final. Wow. you know, uh, many moons before that. So, so it was a great privilege to be in the company of such a, an incredible thinker because Ralph had all of these incredible ideas, which at the time was just like totally off the wall. But, you know, we now know those coaching, you know, processes as the marginal gains, mm. you know, the small differences that make all the difference, you know. So he was, he was way ahead of his time, way ahead. But yeah, great privilege. Actually. Mm. And so what, what was your first foray? Did you know, did you train volleyball a lot as a younger teenager and then sort of come up through the ranks or was it a relatively new sport to you? What was the process? Yeah, it was relatively new for me. Um, when I was in comprehensive school, my maths teacher was a wonderful gentleman um, called Anthony Zaraski. He played volleyball for Wales. Wow. And, uh, and at the time I just, you know, I almost sort of fell into volleyball because I was relatively tall for my age. Um, I had a, a really good, strong vertical jump. Um, I was quite light, quite lean, and I guess just had that great hand and eye coordination that you need, you know, when you're playing volleyball. So I remember, you know, Tony introducing me into the local club that uh, that I played for, which was Abergavenny in South Wales, and then, you know, obviously being selected for Wales, you know, to play for Wales at three British Championships was a, a fantastic privilege for me. You know, it really was as a young man. Um, and then obviously having that, you know, that uh, phone call, you know, to go and have that one week training camp in Lillishaw, 
it was just an incredible experience. We were with GB gymnasts. We were with GB, you know, rifle shooters, pistol shooters, all Olympic standard athletes, you know. And I loved it. I loved it because it was clinical. You know, you just follow the process. And I guess for me as a logical thinker, it, it was something I really enjoyed, you know. It really was. And that must have been, thinking about the years, were you there in the middle of an Olympic cycle? It must have been working up to... It was actually for the 1994 Commonwealth Games. Oh, the Games, okay. So the selection was, you know, three, three and a half, maybe four years out, yeah. you know, before uh, the selection. So then Ralph Hippolyte could then obviously coach, you know, the, the players, you know, for that four-year period. Mm. Unfortunately, I didn't get selected. Um, whether it was because I was the shortest, I don't know. But, you know, I gave it my best shot and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. You know? Well, it's amazing to hear because obviously... You know, immediately, I, I think of Wales, I think of rugby, right? So you've gone a different route straight away than the norm or what is perceived as the norm. Um, and I think what's interesting, or I'd love to hear from you, is then what happened after 1990 to 93, right? That's when you sort of stopped playing as much volleyball and you went into a corporate role, I imagine. Yeah, so I got married at the age of 21, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I guess, you know, I was working full time at the time as a designer, actually, you know, a oh. stained glass designer. Oh. And... Uh, and that was my passion, you know, the creativity, the project management, the business, um, you know, and I suppose my responsibility was to my family, you know, which meant then, you know, I suppose for probably close on 10 years, it was just general fitness, you know, um, going to the gym regularly, cycling regularly, you know, um, and just settling into married life. Mm. You know, my daughter turned up then um, <laughs> at 1994. So that was my priority. You know, was to look after my family and and uh, and yeah, she's now twenty nine. She's actually taller than me now. <laughs> is she? Wow. <laughs> she is. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful young lady. So um, so yeah, great times, obviously, but never never really took my eye off you know sport, health, well being. Mm. Um, funny enough, thinking about rugby, I did have a rugby trial when I was sixteen in school. Um, so yeah, Welsh rugby trial was a yeah, wow. great experience, but. Yeah, for whatever reason, you know, just didn't get selected, you know. Well, I guess, I guess Welsh rugby, you know, you, you by being Welsh, you're immediately into the Welsh first team because you if, know, the standard's not as high as the. the well, <laughs> yeah. if, your name's, if your name is Jones or Williams, then, you know, but Colborne probably didn't fit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what I want to move on to is you're very uh, modest. So you've already mentioned that you've slipped out that you had a, a Wales rugby trial. You got a, a selection or the, a, a trial for. G, uh, GB, GB volleyball, yeah, yeah, and then actually over the the, the time from '93 onwards, you say you t you touched on sport a bit, but you did a lot of adventurous stuff, a lot of paragliding, a lot of climbing, and even triathlon. Right? Yeah, Can you speak yeah. a bit to the triathlon piece? Yeah, very much so. I think you know, ever since I could remember, and I mean, all the way back till I was like seven, eight, nine years of age. You know, I loved swimming. Okay, and I, I guess I was just talented to have that ability. Always had a big engine. And I'll never forget my teacher in primary school, Idris Power, um, you know, just saying to me, I, I remember him saying to me that I have this ability to be a champion. And I suppose at the time, I didn't really recognize or understand what that meant. So all through my school, you know, and certainly into my teenage life, into my adult life, you know, swimming was something that I've, I guess I've always found easy, okay, because of the coordination, mm. you know. So to mix swimming with cycling with running, to mix those three disciplines, I guess, yeah, it just became a passion really, you know, rather than just like one sport, one training regime, 
you can then start to mix it up. So, you know, when I sort of entered into the Welsh Triathlon League, you know, I was in the pool at 5.30 a.m. most mornings, and most of my work colleagues were like, you're mental. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it. And, and we'll touch on something a bit later to do with Professor Steve Peters, you know, the mm. sports psychiatrist of British Cycling. And what he identified through my passion, you know, of movement and health and well-being, you know. So to mix up, as I said, swimming, cycling and running, all three disciplines that I really enjoyed, you know, all my life. Probably when I got to maybe 30, 32, running was a bit sort of difficult, probably because of, you know, my age, having done sport for 20 years at that point. Mm. Um, and then down to the physiology, mm. you know, where you're trying to build leg, leg muscles for cycling, you're trying to build up a body for, you know, for swimming. So the last thing you need is to be five, six, or maybe seven kilos heavier than you need to be when you're running, you know. Um, so, but no, I loved it. You know, I, I raced the um, the Welsh Triathlon League for probably six, maybe seven years, wow. and loved it. You yeah. know, I used to train with a guy called Jonathan Cavell, and if Jonathan's watching this podcast, then you know, sending you my best regards. But John was the the Welsh Triathlon champion, wow, okay. and he's you know he was based in Ebervale, you know, in the South Wales Valleys. Um, ex, you know, military guy, just so pristine with his training, and uh, I learned learned a lot from John. You know, mm, I really it's amazing. Did, so yeah, it's quite interesting to hear the start of people's stories. I'm really interested in the start of people's stories because we often become or we grow with the people around us, right? So if your friends are really into sport or smoking, you're going to follow whichever one they're doing. Same with your family. If a family's got a history of sport, you're more likely to not only be better because maybe genetics, but also they have the drive. They know the journey. Were you surrounded by people in your family or your friends who were at that level of sport or that level of discipline? Or was it more ingrained in you? Um, well, there's two answers. My dad was a runner when he was in the army. You know, he did long distance running. Um, my dad was probably always, gosh, probably 70 kilograms, you know, or sort of 11 stone-ish. Never really, you know, was just slight, never overweight. But never, my parents never pushed me. Okay, They never said, oh, you know, you need to go and do this and, run and play rugby and football my dad always said just do what you enjoy you know and even from you know a young age back to Idris Power you know the teacher in uh, in the primary school um, you know he was the he was the gentleman who always you know really offered us cricket football rugby swimming you know I'll never forget you know every sort of Monday we used to go swimming this is primary school wow. this is probably like 43 years ago 44 years ago um, and the local leisure centre obviously offered us those uh, those facilities, you know, back then. And and I didn't realise at the time why I enjoyed it so much, which will bring us on to Professor Steve Peters a bit yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, you're hinting at it, you're hinting at it. <laughs> so I think, you know, I had those influences around me, but nobody that ever really pushed me to say, oh, you, you, you must do this and you must do that. It was just because I enjoyed it so much. Mm. You know? It's interesting just to hear that the, the passion drove you, which is often the way that it works. Right? You can only be pushed so far. If you've got a passion and a drive, and then you had a, a foray into, like we said, the, the trial for the rugby and then volleyball, and that achievement only drives you further. Mm. So I want to touch on the, the courage side of it. I think it's going to come in a bit later on. But we talked about paragliding and climbing. Right? These are high adrenaline yep. sports. Right? What pushed you towards that? Have you always been a sort of a thrill seeker? I think I'll take you back to when I was probably 10, mm-hmm. 10 or 11, which will lead into the next part of the podcast. Um, I just loved climbing. 
okay? And I would climb anything, you know, even as a 10 or 11 year old, you know, whether it was a tree, even buildings, you know, back in South Wales, I remember we used to climb, this is going to sound really, you know, really out of character, but we used to, you know, literally challenge ourselves by climbing, you know, sort of drain pipes. Wow. Honestly, honestly, (laughs) and I think back now and I'm thinking, you know, how the hell I ever made it to my teenage life (laughs) beyond me, you know, but the, the climbing, you know, certainly, obviously, the the extremity of the South Wales valleys, mm. lots of mountains, some rock faces as well in the quarries, you know, that we should never have been climbing sure, in. Sure, yeah. But I just really enjoyed the challenge, I guess. You know, I really did. Mm. Um, and that then obviously helped me later on in life when I did more structured climbing, you know, with my great friend Aaron, Aaron Scantleberry back home. Um, Aaron, Aaron was just a wonderful, logical thinker. Another ex-forces guy. Mm. Um, just lovely to be around, you know, big heart, strong-minded, um, and never took any prisoners. You know? Oh, really? So, okay, yeah, speaking. straight to it. Nice. So, yeah, but I, I loved it. I, I loved the whole challenge. I loved the safety, you know, to be honest with you, because mm. that's a challenge in itself. And we used to do some bouldering, low-level bouldering, which is like climbing without ropes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, just I used to really enjoy it, you know. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. So then you can almost see straight away from... Climbing, this might not have been the order it happened. How you go to paragliding or para, yeah, paragliding. Paragliding, yeah. yeah. Well, that's um, that's back to John Cavell, you know, okay. the, the actual uh, ex-military guy. And John was in the paras, I believe. And when we used to train, you know, in the leisure centre, and I'll never forget him saying to me one day that he was, you know, he's going paragliding, and it was local to where we were living. So I said, "Oh, can I can I come along and watch?" You know, I, I've always wanted that Peter Pan moment. You know, for some of the listeners probably don't know who Peter Pan is, <laughs> um, but Google it. <laughs> so, so that feeling of flight, and I went to watch the local club um, called Paraventure, and just sat on the hillside, literally on on a sunny afternoon, and just thinking, how cool is that? Mm. Just to take your feet off the floor and just have that feeling of flight, you know. So, so that's when I, you know, I literally signed up and did my course and yeah that sort of led into the part of my life where i guess i thought it was the end of my life you know mm. but lo and behold it was just the beginning of a new life so this is what i want to touch on so we've we've come through the the whole story right so we've touched on how naturally uh, gifted you were touched on you know discipline consistently that taste consistency sorry that taste of you know twice at least twice high performance sport consistently training and, and competing in triathlon. This is really high-level sport. There's a lot of talent in there, a lot of consistency. So I'd love to jump now to 2009, right? Mm-hmm. So you're paragliding. And like you said, this is the start of the next chapter in your life where, you know, it's not for me to say, but you've achieved something that most people will never achieve after mm-hmm. what happened in 2009. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so the I suppose the foundation is, you know, I was working in Cardiff. I was working for a PLC company you know, nice salary, company car, working Monday to Friday, weekends off. Um, you know, I'd been divorced about three years, two and a half, three years at that point. And, you know, I suppose missing my daughter unconditionally. Mm-hmm. You know, I really did at the time. And I'm just sort of getting back into the normality of life again. So the the plan was, you know, with Paraventure to fly above, you know, the Gower Peninsula which is a beautiful part of South Wales above Swansea. And it was a bank holiday weekend. The conditions were perfect, you know, 20 degrees, probably 
14, 13, 14 mile an hour headwind coming in off the, off the ocean, off the Irish Sea. And, you know, we'd flown all day, probably had three and a half, maybe four hours flight time. And then at 5 p.m., one of the guys who was a close friend of mine said, should we go back up? You know, and I said, yeah, okay. You know, so we literally launched the, the canopies and obviously ran off the side of the hillside and we were doing figure of eight, you know, sort of training um, configurations. And at probably 20 past five, I flew into what they call a crosswind, which is basically two airstreams that fight for the same space. So, you know, if anybody's ever driven over black ice, mm. it's that feeling, you know, where you go from being in control to being, you know, out of control. And, you know, I was 15 meters or 45 feet above the grass and the canopy just collapsed just in the wrong place at the wrong time and came down, landed feet first. Um, didn't realize what had happened to me at the time. The canopy reinflated. I got dragged for probably a hundred meters or so across the across the ground, thankfully on grass and not not across the rocks. And and then it finally stopped. So I'm lying on the grass, just looking up at the blue sky, in no pain at this point, which is crazy. Oh, okay. And then realizing when I looked down my body, both my legs were twisted like like mm. pipe cleaners. And I thought to myself, oh dear, it shouldn't really look like that. <laughs> and I couldn't move. I had no feeling. And I tried to put myself into the recovery position, you know, just in case I vomited and passed out. And I just couldn't move. You know, I was totally paralyzed from the waist down. And one of the gentlemen who actually saw me crash was flying about 400 feet above me. And he obviously looked down, landed, unclipped and ran over. You know, and he took one look at me, and I'm just staring at this guy in complete shock because I don't know what's going on. I can't move, I can't feel anything, you know, but I'm in no pain. And this guy says to me, Oh my gosh, are you still alive? I said, Dennis, I, I, I can't feel my legs, you know. So this gentleman is an ex SAS paratroop instructor from Heliford. So if there was anybody in the UK that day to be there watching me, it was Dennis because he's mm -hmm. obviously a fully qualified. You know, paratroop instructor. He knows the process when a when a pilot goes down. You know, and he radioed for the Wales Air Ambulance, who thankfully arrived in about eleven or twelve minutes. You know, so I got stabilised. I got um, the morphine line put into my veins, and then a neck collar, chest brace, and then you know, carefully, carefully put on onto the spinal board because the paramedic knew I'd done something pretty serious, but just didn't know what I'd done. And got airlifted off to Swansea Hospital, you know, to be told that night that I'd broken my back, you know. And I thought, what? What? You never expect to, no. to go through that severity, you know. And, uh, and my parents obviously turned up that night in hospital. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm in for it now. Yeah. Because my dad always told me, you know, that you have to look after this machine. You know, it's the one gift we have. And... Um, and yeah, it could have ended, you know, could have gone the other way. Mm, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I've done a bit of skydiving and I, even at 50 feet, I couldn't imagine how quickly you'd pick up speed. And yeah. similar things happened to my, my brother-in-law when he's um, finishing a, a skydiver, a base jump, parachute collapsed at similar height, oh, wow. but wasn't injured as bad. It, both legs broken, but wasn't the back. And, you know, I, what I'm interested in really is at that point, before we move on to, to what happened next, how much do you think your 
health, your lifelong journey of health and fitness benefited you? Because we had quite a serious car crash last year and my brother-in-law the same with his accident. They both told us that because we're in, we're fit and had physical um, you know, resilience, yeah. it helped to some extent because ultimately we're all super lucky that these accidents haven't completely finished us, right? Although yeah. as, as bad as they are. So yeah. how did you feel at the time? How were you told that it had benefited you? I, I can honestly say that being really strong, really fit, you know, I was 40, um, you know, exceptionally strong legs from running, rock climbing, you know. Um, yeah, definitely my, my health and my strength saved my life. Mm. Even, you know, even the, the surgeon, you know, in Cardiff, in the university hospital said to me that I shouldn't be here. Wow. I said, sorry? He said, technically, Mark, you, you shouldn't be alive. You should be in a cemetery with flowers on your head. Mm. And it's your, you know, it's your health, your well-being, your strength, you know, my, my overall strength. Because um, I was probably 10 kilos heavier then than what I am now, um, just through weight training, mm. you know. And it was the strength in my legs that saved my life. However, if you think of how I landed, you know, the strength in my legs stopped the impact, but then the whole body just compressed, mm. you know. And that's something that I couldn't really stop, no. you know, I couldn't stop. So, and then even on to, you know, the rehabilitation, I had a spinal operation, six pins in my back, which are still there today. Um, and then that whole process in hospital of being fit and healthy accelerated the rehabilitation process, mm. you know. Well, that's what I want to touch on. So. 100 days in hospital, motionless, right, was, was, part, was the first part of the recovery. Yeah. I almost wonder how mental resilience benefited you there as well. Maybe that had, had a, a, an impact from your sporting career because that's super difficult, right? Resilience, perseverance, and courage to be able to keep going at that time because it was something that, you know, you didn't know what the end result was going to be. Correct, yeah. And I think after 94 days, it nearly broke me. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because if you think about somebody that breaks an arm or a leg, for instance, normally eight to ten weeks in plaster, Maybe maybe a bit longer, depending on the break. But probably within four months, you know, the cast comes off, you go through your rehab, you're back in work, probably within five to six months. But the problem is with the spinal cord, because it's related to the rest of your body, you just never know what's going to happen. So when you go through that process of just lying in bed, totally paralyzed from the waist down, week after week after week, we're not talking hours here. We're talking like weeks after weeks after weeks after weeks. And it was probably 94 days in, you know, three months in, hardly any movement, maybe a little bit of, you know, muscle memory coming back, but not much. And it got to the point where I just thought, well, this is probably going to be the rest of my life. You know, this is it. Get used to this hospital bed. Get used to the view of the ceiling. Um... <coughs> excuse me, because this may be it, you know, and the days just flew by, you know, weeks flew by, and I'll never forget my parents coming to visit me one night, and just another day of tears, uncertainty, apprehension, fear, doubt, all these feelings, and I'll never forget my mum going to the bathroom, and my dad actually pulling the curtains around the bed, If you think of my dad as a human being, he was known as Mr. Nice Guy. He was a gentleman, okay, just a true gentleman. Never raised his voice, never swore in the house, never took a hand to me, you know. Maybe threatened me a few times, but 
you know, I was fast enough to run away. <laughs> and and my dad pulled the curtain around and he pulled the chair up towards me. And he said to me, you listen to me now. I couldn't go anywhere. I'm lying in this hospital bed, paralyzed from the waist down. And I said, yeah, what's wrong? He said, please pull yourself together. Okay. Stop, stop putting your mum and I through this. Because you're better than this. You're going to get through this because you're a winner. Are you listening to me? And he reached over and he grabbed hold of my T-shirt. And it was the first time that I'd ever had that confrontation with my father. My father had the eyes of a husky dog, mm. pure blue, mm. you know. <laughs> and wow. I was like, complete shock. And it was because he was worried about me, you know. He said, Mark, you're going to get through this because you're a winner. Are you listening to me? And it was the pattern interrupt that I needed, you know. And he said, don't tell your mum we've had this conversation, okay. So he pulled the curtain around you, come my mum. No way. And my mum never knew about the conversation, you know. But what I needed was that, that conversation of reality, okay, rather than the poor me, you know, emotional state that I was in, you know. And it did me the world of good, mm. you know, it really did. Well, the, so. the break of patterns are really interesting because 18 months after that, I'm right in saying you're a world champion. If you'd had said to me, Freddie, <laughs> honestly, if you'd said to me in the hospital bed, have a guess what? In February 2012, have a guess what you're going to be doing? I just said, mate, just, you know, you're crazy. <laughs> you're Isn't crazy, it? you know. Isn't that and, amazing? And I'll never forget in hospital, the last month in hospital, when they sat me on to one of the rehabilitation bikes. It's like an indoor trainer bike. And they just wanted me to start to get active, get the blood flowing, you know. And they bandage my feet to the pedals. Because my feet don't work because I have dropped foot because of my spinal injury. And they bandage my feet to the pedals, which meant that I could actually push and pull mm. without my feet falling off, you know. And that was my very first experience of marginal gains on the bike, wow. you know. So so yeah, and thanks to Disability Sport Wales, when I left hospital, I started rowing, believe it or mm. not. Honestly, with a broken back, which even I thought was crazy at the time. Um, but using my quads, my hip flexors and my core, you know, to, um, to row. Because I knew in my head that if I got myself fit and healthy again, I'd have some, some form of life, some quality of life, you know, rather than just, just waste away. You know? mm. But then I had to make that decision between rowing and cycling. Yeah, so how did you, you know? do that? That's what I was really going to ask you. Yeah, so back to British trials again, actually. <laughs> I had a, a British rowing trial for the adaptive rowing team in Caversham uh, in the UK, which is the Olympic Rowing Centre. Mm. And I'll never forget the coach, a wonderful gentleman called Tom Dyson. And there's, there's, there's something, I'm going to share this with, the, with you and the audience. There's something about names in my life, okay, that has just had a, reson a resonance, okay? So the GB... Um, rowing coach was a gentleman called Tom Dyson. So I did my rowing trial in Caversham, did all the pushing, pulling, testing, you know, all the VO2 max testing. And Tom said, Mark, your numbers are great, but you're about six inches too short. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they look for long leverage, you know, um, people. Mm. Um, so, so that was my decision almost made for me. And then it was down to the, the cycling route. But remember, it was still only rehab at the time, you know, really? there okay. was no focus on London 2012, you know, at that point. Um, the game changer was June 2010, 
when I met a chiropractor on a charity cycle ride and he asked me about my disability. And we shared a great 20-minute conversation. And then he said these words to me, can I ask you a question? Said, of course. Are you training for the Paralympics in two years' time? I said, no. Why the hell would I do that? <laughs> he said, I think you should. Wow. And that was it. Light bulb moment. And I just thought, wow, what if I can get to the Paralympics? How cool would that be? What an experience after everything that I'd gone through. So I said to my cycling coach at the time, Neil Smith, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, I said, Neil, I'd really like to commit, you know, to see if we can, as a team, get to the Paralympics, you know. And Neil said, okay, I'll help you, because he was a facilitator, like a talent scout, and he'd helped other riders, other cyclists before, make it into British cycling, who then went on to win world championships, mm -hmm. Paralympic championships, okay, world record holders. And Neil said, okay, I'll help you. But I need two things. I need commitment and honesty. I said, is that it? <laughs> and he said, that's it. Just just do the training and let the numbers win the argument. You know? And that's when he rang British Cycling and said, look, I've got this C1 athlete. Um, I think you need to come and take a look. And I guess the rest is in the history books, you know. Oh, exactly. I I'd love to hear, though, what it was like in that maybe a year out mm -hmm. from the Olympics. And then we'll go into the actual... Paralympic yeah, Games yeah. and your stories there because it, it wasn't the one medal, yeah. right? So I want to hear the, the story because you've told me a story before about turning up to British cycling and your mentality and then having to be told, that's not quite how we do it here. You know, you almost over, you want to over deliver. Yeah, 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 100%. I think, you know, if you, if you look at the summer of 2011, you know, a year before the Games, I was given an opportunity by British cycling to be part of almost the cycling academy of British cycling as a guest rider to participate in five races in five different countries with the road race and the 10 mile time trial, which is more my discipline rather than road riding because I've not really got the skeleton for road riding, you know, <laughs> probably 10 kilos too heavy. Um, but after those five races, I came back with five medals. So British cycling thought, well, okay, we're one year from the games here, there's potential. You know, there's potential. So I raced then in the World Time Trial Championships in Denmark and came back with a silver, which for me at the time was just this, just a huge steep learning curve, you know. And that then allowed me to be selected by British Cycling to be under lottery funding, part of the world-class program. To then move from South Wales, when I was back living with my parents, to then move up to Manchester to be part of British Cycling, to train for the Paralympics. Not to be selected, but to train for the Paralympics. And I'll never forget arriving in the September 2011 to have all of this induction and meet all the coaches, meet all the athletes. And it was a childhood dream. I was like, wow, you know, I'm actually going to be training, you know, with the best athletes in the world, with the best coaches in the world. And looking at my planner from my coach, who's also whose name was also Tom. Huh. So there's something about this, isn't it? So Tom Stanton sat me down and said, look, Mark, this is your planner for the next 12 months. Well, we take three months at a time, okay? And I said, Tom, what's this, um, what's this sort of mark for a Monday? And he said, oh, Monday's a day off, Mark. I said, what? Sorry? A day off? I'm training for the Olympics, <laughs> you know? Training for the Paralympics. Surely we don't have a day off. And he said, no, no, no. You have to have a day off because when you train and you rest and you, you recover, that's when the magic happens. I was like, okay, I get it. 
you know, I get it. So, and he said, if you don't listen, I'll take your bike off you. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, so you literally, you have to rest and recover. Mm. It's part of the holistic process, mm. you know. So what was it like being in that camp? So you've been around, uh, you know, elite cyclists or good sports uh, people. What was it like when you went there? Was it more intense? What was the coaching like? What was the difference? If you think of the, if you think of the three zones that a professional athlete would, would, would live in, okay, you've got your comfort zone, which is literally this, mm. okay? Then you have your stretch zone, which is your training process, and then the panic zone. And the panic zone is what the coaches get you ready for when you have to push the body far beyond what you want to enjoy, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is the pain threshold, you know? And cycling, certainly as, a, as an endurance sport, you have to accept there's going to be pain, but also accept that it's only going to be short term, maybe three or four minutes, okay? Not three or four months or three or four years. So you have to time the training, the rest, the recovery, the diet, the lifestyle, the hydration, the sleep. You have to time it all so then when you do go into the panic zone, you then have another month to recover. That makes oh, sense? Well, okay, yeah. So yeah. you literally only go... I mean, 100%, probably once a month. Because mm. 100%, you know, when you're a pro athlete, a pro cyclist, it's pretty full on. It's going to hurt your body. Know? And certainly dealing with that disability as well, because you're having to ex- almost expose and expand more calories to deal with your disability. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know? So, so, yeah, being in that environment, you know, training on the track with people like Sir Chris Hoy, wow. training in the gym, you know, obviously you had. You know, Team Sky training in in British cycling in Manchester as well. Um, so yeah, it was an incredible experience, a very cathartical experience. You know, seeing the best cyclists in the world. You know, people like Ed Clancy, mm. obviously Geraint Thomas. You know, Brad Wiggins, wow. Peter Kenner, just all of these incredible athletes. You know, Vicky Pendleton. It's just incredible. It was an incredible memory for me. Mm. Was there any points of overwhelm in that training? Certainly in that first you know, two or three, that three-month cycle, actually, that you said you were first there. Was there any points of overwhelm where you thought, I don't know if I can do this. I'm around these people that are so incredible. I don't know if it's for me. Or was it straight away, I know I can do this. This is, this is me all you, over. You, you carry with you an air of confidence, mm-hmm. okay? Not an egotistic mindset, okay? So British cycling, this is where Professor Steve Peters really earns his money, okay? The number one, in my opinion, the number one sports psychiatrist in the world. And he... He taught me and the other athletes how to manage the inner voice. Because in your head, there's two of you. Mm. This freaks people out. So you've got the logical thinking, Freddie, mm-hmm. okay, who turns up on time today. Excellent. Nice. You know? And then you have the emotional thinking, Freddie, who, on, yeah, in, in the majority of times, you have no control over that emotion. You know? And if something happens that's... Um, unexpected, your inner voice, which is the primate reaction, kicks in, okay? Because your brain is almost living its life in conflict between the emotions and the logical. So it's how you take control as a human being, Mm. you know? And that's something that, you know, even now, crikey, 11, maybe 12 years on, I'm still loving and enjoying that logical thinking lifestyle, Mm. you know? The chimp is still there, the inner voice that Professor Peters, you know, through his research, has named the chimp, yeah. and um, and it does raise its head now and again. But it's how you take control, mm. you know. So yeah, being on the track, 
training with all these incredible world-class athletes, it did one thing for me, and it really built my confidence. You know, it really built my confidence to know three things. The process within British Cycling works, okay? They wouldn't have hundreds of gold medals otherwise, okay? As part of Team GB and as part of, part of Paralympics GB, okay? Because that's what you race for in the Games, okay? So secondly, the proce- after the process works, is having self-belief. Is having belief in the process, the program, the plan, but then the mm. final pillar is having belief in you doing the process. Mm. That makes sense. Totally. So you literally then have to, you have to put so much confidence in the coaches because they are the best of the best, okay? You know, I, I grew up on literally chicken, pasta, and chocolate. I was never going to win an Olympic medal or a Paralympic medal of chicken, pasta, and chocolate, okay? I wasn't. So to have the best nutritionist in cycling tell me what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, how much fluid to drink, mm. when to sleep, okay? You, you literally say, yes, sir, of course, because you're the expert, yeah. you know? Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So we've touched on the, the physical aspects of training. We've touched on the mindset, which is arguably the hard part. Just take us through 2012, the summer of 2012, London Paralympic Olympic Games, and your your month. What what was it like? Talk us through the, the races. It was just a, an amazing summer of sport because in the February, February 2012, I went to Los Angeles and literally, you know, won the world championships off the back of just being so confident because I had nothing to lose, yeah. you know. Um, it was the same week. Unfortunately, we lost my dad to stomach cancer. So you can imagine, I've gone through all this trauma of, you know, unfortunately getting divorced in 2006, breaking my back in 2009, losing my best friend, my hero, my go-to guy, literally a day before I raced in the world finals. Back to Professor Steve Peters. He was there to help me and coach me and talk me through how to overcome that one moment in my life that my dad my dad was not coming back it's reality mark okay accept it move on tomorrow is a moment in time that only you can have the outcome you can determine what's going to happen but what if you fly home mm. and you don't race you can't win the world championships Does that makes sense mm-hmm. so i said to professor peters and my coach i'm going to stay i'm going to race for my country but more importantly I'm going to race for my dad, you know. So the next day to win the world championships, to win the rainbow, you know, the rainbow jersey, a very famous, you know, multicolored striped, you know, jersey, to become a world champion, number one in my sport in, in the world, was just like the wow moment. And I suppose that was just the springboard then, you know, for that epic summer of sport where in the UK we had a Wimbledon winner, mm-hmm. we had a Tour de France winner, mm-hmm. you know, in Sir Bradley Wiggins. And then in the July, the Olympics, which was a great warm-up for the Paralympics, by the way. And then it was time for the superhumans, you know, with three and a half thousand athletes, you know, obviously flying into into London to to really prove to the world that life is all about ability, not disability. You know, so the equality, the diversity, the inclusion of that Games was just a game changer Mm -hmm. for the whole world. You know, and it was such a privilege, you know, to race in a Paralympics and a home Paralympics, 
you know, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were the races that you were competed at there? So British Cycling entered me into three races because they felt that I had potential to win three medals. But we didn't know what colour. Even though we did have a pretty good idea in one of the races. <laughs> because in, in training behind closed doors, I'd been riding on world record pace in the three-kilometre pursuit, which is 12 laps of the velodrome. You know? So British Cycling and my coach, who I worked really close with, Tom Stanton, said, look, you know, we'll put you into the kilo, which is four laps of the velodrome or one kilometer and we feel that you've got potential you know to win a medal and lo and behold it was a silver and it was actually the the first day of competition wow so i actually won the very first medal for paralympics gb at the home games albeit wow. a silver okay? moment in history <clears throat> but to go down in you know in the history books as the first medal winner uh, and then sarah's story literally i believe you know four or five hours later won the first gold for Great Britain, you know, at the, at the home Paralympics. So, so Sarah's obviously gone down in history for winning the first gold, but technically I won the first medal, nice. albeit the silver. But <laughs> a win's a win. You know? And the 10-mile time trial was another silver. Um, my nemesis from Germany, Mikhail Teuber, if he's watching this, hi, Mikhail, <laughs> uh, who beat me by 12 seconds, you know, over, over 10 miles or 16 wow. kilometers. So it's almost one second you know, almost one second a mile. Yeah. So that race was really close, you know, really close. But I guess, you know, my childhood dream, as I said, was in the, the three-kilometer pursuit, um, which is 12 laps of the velodrome. And the story was that morning, uh, a young lad from China broke the world record in qualifications. So my coach, Tom, said, look, Mark, you're going to have to break the world record just to get into the final. I said, okay, set the schedule and leave the rest to me, you know. And I broke the world record by seven seconds just to make it into the final, you know, which was four hours later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, almost holding a little bit back, but, you know, pretty much empty in the tank the last two or three laps. And, uh, and I'll never forget the gentleman from the World Drug Association walking over to us with a clipboard, you know, after the qualification ride to ask for a sample. And my coach said, well, you know, the law states, because the final's on the same day, you have to take the sample after the final, you know. And of course, I was clean, you know, not interested in taking any performance enhancing drugs or nutrition. And, um, and literally four hours later, it was time to, you know, rewrite the history books once again. You know? I mean, it's quite amazing. And uh, we're not sat in front of a Union Jack <laughs> with something quite special in front of us for, for any reason other than you know, it was gold, wasn't it? And 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 the video, if you haven't seen the video, it's on your website actually, isn't it? Yes. It's quite an incredible. I've watched it a few times. Yeah. Because yeah. it wasn't an easy race either, was it? Well, if you if you think of the other athlete from China, there was three main um, advantages for him. One, he was 18 years younger than me. Mm. Okay? Secondly, you know, he's a sprinter, okay, an out-and-out sprinter. So he was much faster than me over probably the first four or five laps. So my coach said when we had the race briefing that his concern was the rider was going to go for the catch, which meant that he, if he came out of the gate and accelerated flat out for four or five laps, and if he caught me and he passed me, the race is over. Oh, okay. The race is over. Okay, so you can win by the catch. Mm-hmm. So my coach said, look, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to really go for it the first four or five laps and then just hang on, you wow. know. So we set the schedule, the time schedule is exactly the same time as the morning. 
So I knew I could ride on world record pace, but didn't realize for one moment exactly just how quick I could go because I just knew, Freddie, that this was a moment in time that would never, ever, ever happen again, okay? And it was just time to leave everything out on the track, you know? So they called my name and my number, which is a bit weird, actually. So Mark Colborn, Great Britain, number 42, which was my age. Wow. There's something going on here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I'll never forget after the warm-up, you know, being placed on the bike, um, six and a half thousand people in the velodrome. I think there were 1.2 million people watching on the TV. And the commentator, you know, the commissaire commentator, you know, over the microphone saying to the audience, you know, shh. And it was this quiet, honestly. So I'm now thinking to myself, this is it. This is where I literally have to push the body beyond what it wants to do because I'm in control. Remember the chimp? Mm. And I'll never forget my coach saying to me, you know, just before the, the beeps, are you ready? I said, yep, I'm ready. He said, do this for your dad. Wow. And he walked off. He puts his hand up to say the rider's ready. Flag goes up. The first beep starts, which is 12 seconds. So it gives both riders. Remember, I'm riding against Yang Zi from China. It gives both riders then the indication the countdown has now started. No going back now. Mm. There's no sort of thinking, I hope the tires are pumped up. <laughs> you know? So then the beeps start, you know, the five seconds, beep, four, beep, beep, all the way down to zero. And that's when you literally grab the handlebars, preload the pedal, take the deepest breath you can, and then just wait for the gun to go off. And when the gun goes off, you wait. You actually wait to listen for the brake pads that's holding the bike on the track start. So oh. you have a track stand mm. and the back wheel is clasped together by two brake blocks. Because there's no gears on these bikes. No gears, just a fixed wheel, okay? So those brake blocks, they've got the back wheel secured really tightly, okay? And because it's a hydraulic pneumatic system, you can hear it go in. Mm. So even though you hear the bang of the, you know, the gun going off, you know, you have to listen for the Wow. Because if you go on the that quarter of a second, you is the difference between you being in the gate and out the gate. Wow. Okay, so you wait for the... And there is a, a noticeable gap. It's like a hundredth of a second. But you can feel it because you're... You can hear there. it. You oh, can cool. hear wow. it through the helmet. You know, mm. So I waited for the... And then it's off. First corner, flat out. And I'll never forget just winding the bike up at speed, riding a huge gear. And after the second lap, I'd hit probably around 42, 44k an hour. And then it was time to settle. And that's when the race really starts, mm. you know. Is it, another 10 laps to go is a long way, yeah. you know. Um, I'm passing the start-finish line literally after lap four, lap five, and my coach telling me that I'm on schedule, world record schedule, you know. And, um, and at that point then, it's, it's just time to settle for probably two and a half minutes to really start to build up the lactic acid, really raise the heart rate, and I peaked on probably lap eight, maybe into lap nine or 202 beats per minute. Wow. And at that point, then it's time to hurt yourself in control for a reason, you know. Mm. And I'll never forget on lap nine into lap 10 thinking, I wonder where the rider is, you know, because he's still not past me at this point, you know. 
And I'll never forget looking up the track and actually seeing him, seeing him going around the corner. No way. So my, my inner voice says, oh, my gosh, he's literally now like 80 meters ahead of me. So that's when I literally started to, you know, really uh, empty the tank on lap 10. And then lap 11, he's now literally 20, 30 meters closer. And then obviously going around the corner on lap 11 into lap 12, just literally feeling his slipstream on my face. And I'll never forget this moment, Freddie, as long as I live, I'll never forget thinking to myself, I've won. I've won. The only thing I have to do is stay upright. Don't fall off, Mark. No. Just don't fall off. Whatever you do, just keep going through the process. Don't think about the outcome. Yeah. Just think about the process. Stay upright. Keep following the black line. Keep literally breathing, pushing, breathing, pushing. And then on the last corner, I came around and he's literally 30 meters ahead of me. And as I crossed the start-finish line and looked up at the scoreboard, there was no time. It just said WR, nice. world record. And you knew. I was like, oh my gosh. And all the pain just went. It's really weird. No way. Yeah, just really weird. This is a great time, if you don't mind. Yes. So for people that are watching, we've got yes. a Paralympic gold medal. Yes. So this, this is my childhood dream in a box. Look you know, that. and largest medals ever made for Paralympics really? and Olympics. Um, and, you know, very proud for me. They were made in South Wales, in, wow, the, in no. the Royal Mint in South Wales, where they make the money, you know. So you have 400 grams of metal, uh, 380 grams of solid silver, which is the base metal, mm -hmm. and then 20 grams of gold that has been coated with. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So just talk us through that feeling when you're stood on the podium. Right, and you've, you've won it. Maybe you settled down slightly. Was this, is the podium ceremony the same day? Yes, literally about a half an hour later. Okay, cool. Know. So what how did you feel? What was going through your mind then? I think coming off the track and giving all the coaches and the mechanics and all the, you know, all the riders and the team just a huge hug just to say thank you, mm. you know. Um, because I guess, did I think it was possible? Maybe, you know. But then the realisation that all the hard work literally two and a half years of blood, sweat and tears was worth it, you know. And I'll never forget speaking to Professor Steve Peters, who talks about, you know, giving 100% and accepting the outcome, okay. Because if you, if you give 100% and you don't win a medal, I know this sounds crazy, but that's okay. Mm. Because you gave your best. It was just unfortunate that the other rider or the other sports person was better than you on the day, mm. you know. So the, the proud feeling of giving 100%, thankfully it was the right outcome, you know, because if Yang Zi had caught me after four, five, six laps, race is over, yeah. you know. Um, so it, it was just an amazing feeling to think that all the, all the hard work was worth it. Yeah. The, the, the feeling of, yeah, the feeling of being proud to represent my country you know, and represent my family and just to prove to myself that that childhood dream that I had when I was probably 10, you know, when I saw Daley Thompson, who was my sporting hero, you know, win gold in 1980, win gold in 1984 in the decathlon, mm. to just prove to myself that it's important never to give up on those dreams, you know, it really is. Mm. Um, and yeah, to be stood on the podium you know, with the, the national anthem playing with a gold medal around my neck, it was just like, well, 
you know, it was all worth it. You know? It sounds like a dream almost, doesn't it? And then a year later, mm. you're then receiving an MBE, which is for people uh, you know, listening, one of the highest awards you can get as a civilian uh, in, in the UK um, for services to cycling, which is incredible as well. Right? It's incredible because, as I said earlier on, all these circumstances have happened in my life. And I'll never forget my late mum telling me when I was a young kid that, um, that her birthday, which was the 14th of November, was the same as Prince Charles. Okay, so that was my mum's claim to fame. Okay, <laughs> and I'll never forget. This is a great story, actually. That just before the Christmas, I was living in Cardiff. I, I started renting in in Cardiff after the games, so I could train in Cardiff. You know, near to the the Welsh Institute of Sport. And I'll never forget. You know, my mum saying to me, "Look, you know, come on up. You know, don't stay down in Cardiff Christmas time. Come up." Spend a couple of days with you know with, with with me, and I said, yeah, yeah, of course. So I'll never forget staying up with my mum for a couple of days just before the Christmas period, and literally sitting in my mum's kitchen. My mum, I think, was having a shower in the bathroom, and there's a knock at the door. So I opens the door, and it's the it's the postman, <clears throat> who I knew really well. Morning, John. How are you? Hi, Mark. How are you? You know, how's the Paralympics? Well done. Congratulations. I've got a letter for you. He said. I said, well, thank you ever so much. So as I took this letter from him, which is quite a big envelope, mm. you know, quite a heavy envelope, and on the back was a stamp from Buckingham Palace. Ah, oh, he knew. And he stood there, <laughs> and he's like, do you want to open it? Oh. And I said, well, John, it's a bit rude, but, you know, thanks very much. Because he knew there was something special in that envelope, you know. So anyway, he left. So here comes my mum now. She said, who was that? I saw it was just the postman just dropping off some mail for me, you know. Anyway, so when I finally opened the envelope in private, it was a letter from the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, to basically say, congratulations, you've been awarded the MBE, you know, Member of British Empire, for your services to sport and country at the London 2012 Paralympic Games. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to Buckingham Palace. Unbelievable, you know. So, so on the 1st of January, when they announced then, obviously, all of the, you know, the MBEs, CBs, OBs, you know, in the New Year's Honours list, it must have been about 8 a.m. Friday in the morning, and I, I was back staying in Cardiff. So my mobile phone rings, and it says, Mam Mobile. So I'm thinking, my mum's obviously ringing me to wish wish me Happy New Year, you know. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Happy New Year. I've just been told, she said, by your neighbour, that you've just been awarded the MBE mm. in the New Year's Honours list. Is that right? I said, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? And why didn't you tell me? Oh. I said, well, the letter said from the Queen, do not disclose this letter to anybody because it's part oh, okay. of the embargo, mm. okay? But I'm your mother, Mark. Uh-oh, big trouble. <laughs> so to take my mum then to Buckingham Palace to see her only son, who'd been through hell and back, mm. you know, to receive the MBE from... Prince Charles, now King Charles, mm. was a great moment for her. It was her day. It was genuinely her day, you know. And I'll never forget walking out and my mum saying to me, did you tell him? Sorry? Did you tell him? T- tell who? Well, Prince Charles. I said, tell him what? Well, his birthday is the same as mine. Oh, <laughs> my God. And I wish I did, <laughs> but I never did. I truly wish I did because that would have been... Yeah, the icing on the cake. Yeah, that's Prince Charles to have said something about my mum, you know. But um, that's amazing. Actually, so, yeah. I forgot to mention as well. You have also got a uh, gold post box, right? Which is part yes. of twenty twelve uh, London. 
Yeah, so all of the Olympic and Paralympic gold medalists um, as part of the, the Royal Mail um, gesture was, uh, was that we all had our local post boxes painted gold. And there's a plaque actually on the post box from uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II to say, you know, about the reason for it being painted gold and that it will stay gold until further notice. Wow, and it's still there now. Still there now. That's amazing. Still Isn't there that now. so good? What a story. It's incredible. So, yeah. I, what I want to do now is I want to link this to the work you're doing now. And sure. I'm really talking to you about, or your opinion on, what is the best way to achieve sporting greatness? And also, what is an elite mindset to you? How do you get there? Or, or do you need it? What's the, what's the thinking behind? Yeah, there's probably a few answers. But I suppose to give people the overview, you know, is first of all, find a passion. Okay. Whatever that passion is, doesn't have to be sport. You know, if you can have a hobby, it could be painting. I don't know. It could be anything. You know, photography. You know, we're in this wonderful studio. <laughs> you know, with probably ten million pounds worth or ten million dollars worth of kit around us. Um, but to find that passion, you know, and then find out who's done it before. Okay, how did they achieve what they did? What what was different that they did versus anybody else? And if you look at the marginal gains or what I class as peak performance in sport, you know, are the, the very small differences that make all the difference. You know, people like Michael Phelps, mm. I think he's won like 20 some odd gold medals in swimming. Incredible. But if you look at his training regime and what he gave up to achieve what he did, okay, and that's what life in sport or maybe in business, certainly now as a leadership coach, is, is what are you prepared to give up to achieve what you want, mm. you know, as that passion you have? And just to finish on the, you know, the marginal gains, Professor Peters, you know, when I met him, he identified that I had this great passion for dopamine, you know, that I've always enjoyed movement. I've always enjoyed activity and training and racing. So when I was told to cycle, you know, six, seven hundred kilometers a week, it wasn't an issue. That makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't an issue because for me, it was almost an internal love mm. for movement, for the feeling you get from the dopamine, you know. So I think if you look at business, you know, the peak performance marginal gains in business, what are you prepared to give up? Mm. Okay. What do you have to do extra or different to your competition? You know, and certainly in the corporate world now as a leadership coach, as I said, you know, with the program I have, and we coach, you know, leaders, C-suite executives, middle managers that you have to keep fit. Mm. You have to have that corporate athlete mindset, okay, to be fit and healthy for your work, for your mindset, for your processes, to influence the teams around you, rather than live in a sedentary lifestyle and be un unhealthy and overweight, because it's, it's no good for the physicality, mm. you know. What, you, what I've seen you talk about before and I've read about you know, some of your work is that you actually talk about sustained peak performance, right? It's not just about getting there. You've touched on it in your journey of sport, actually, but I've seen it when you talk to um, executives, C-suite, like you mentioned, because the fitness side of it is really important to sustain, but it's also the mindset side, isn't it? So how does someone achieve sustained peak performance? How do they, how do they develop that consistency and discipline? Yeah, so if you think I'm 11 years on now from London, okay, and I'm still cycling 300 kilometers a week, and I'm coaching people at the same time. Mm. So I'm not out on a jolly mm. on Al Qudra, you know, <laughs> here in Dubai. Um, but what I am doing is maintaining what I obtained 11 years ago. Mm. Okay. okay, probably four or five kilos heavier now, 
10 years older, you know, but that's just the reality of life, isn't it? You know, we can't stop it. But what we can do is slow it down with a great diet, lots of sleep, good hydration, and a positive mindset, mm. you know? So for people who want to obtain optimum health, okay, you have to give up other stuff, okay? You have to embrace the benefits of a healthy diet because you are what you eat, 100%. And, and certainly now, you know, for me and how I coach, you know, uh, executives, they, they live an abundant lifestyle, okay, where food is abundant, maybe alcohol is abundant, okay? But I have a philosophy that you would never feed, you know, a, a prize-winning resource, junk food, or alcohol. You just wouldn't, okay? Now, I'm not saying you don't have to eat junk food and you don't have to drink alcohol. That's people's personal preference, you know? But to obtain peak performance, you have to give up, you know, the majority of your time not being forced into the unhealthy foods, mm. which for many people is just now, you know, it's just so abundant, certainly in the corporate world, you know. Fitness, how important is movement? Your body was designed to move because when you move and you recover and you rest and the body repairs, you know, it's that sort of two steps forward, one step back philosophy, you know, where you have to move, mm. you know, you really do. And, it, and it's so important as part of the holistic verticals of, um, of, of finding, you know, that, that peak performance. I, I completely agree. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that we have as, as members, I think in this day and age, or certainly over the last few years, it's become okay to be disciplined in the week and then have that, blah, that cheat meal has become a massive thing, right? Where obviously we're going to have days where we're not going to eat perfectly. We're not going to train perfectly, but you train all week and you look after stuff all week and then have a massive blow up maybe you go to a brunch at the weekend you think it's okay it's a saturday i've trained all week or you have all the alcohol you then ruin your work from the week and you have a detrimental effect on the next week because of the sleep and your body's trying to digest all the bad toxins yeah. so i think i completely agree you know a lot of the stuff you're saying is consistency and from your story a lot of what i hear one of the most impressive things i hear is consistency and resilience, right? And if you've got those yeah. two things, yeah. everything else comes comes with it, yeah, yeah, if it's yeah, fair to say. Yeah. If you add in number three, which is discipline. Mm, okay. Of course, yeah. So go back to Professor Steve Peters. You know, this does sound like a Professor Steve Peters show, but it's not, okay? But, <laughs> but if you think of that voice that says to you, Freddie, it's okay. Saturday, go and, go and enjoy the brunch. Go and fill your boots, okay? Go and have literally every piece of cuisine in, in, you know, in the buffet. But what if you turn that voice off? Okay, what if, you, what if you cage the chimp? What if you silence the chimp? What if the chimp is never there? What if you then say, well, yes, I'm going to go to the brunch and I'm going to have a nice time with my friends or family, but I'm really going to treat my body to really the healthiest food I can find. That's, that's the, the proud feeling I get rather than tucking into all of the processed calories that takes three or four days for your body to get yeah. rid of you know so it's almost self-harm to yeah. a certain degree totally. you know so so that that's just my philosophy and i think certainly now in the c-suite executive culture the always on culture mm. they are now embracing it mm. if you look at the harvard business review from 2001 the white paper that was produced based on the making of a corporate athlete okay and you look at the data from businesses that have literally increased their profits, increased their P&L, you know, that's 
positively affected their bottom line, all from their middle managers and leaders embracing that athlete lifestyle. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I, I think I completely agree. It's, it's self harm, and it's um, it's almost a lack of self respect. I, I believe in some way. What's interesting is today on LinkedIn, I uh, I saw an article, did a post about it, and it was that uh, venture capitalists, VCs in the US and Europe over the last couple of years have been investing millions into founder wellness, looking after the people that start their startups. Because if you look after the person, the squishy bit behind the, the startup, you're going to have a healthier business, healthier profits. And now they've seen that ROI, and that's the highest ROI they can have yeah. in terms of the business. Everyone else is starting to get around it. But still, we're still behind that in the MENA region. People still aren't, there's not enough funding or not enough help of people to look after themselves, which I think is really interesting. And that's a lot of the work that we're both doing, but actually you're doing with the, the corporate level, which is really, really interesting. So what are the people that come to you for the cycling coaching number of times a week? What do you think they are looking for? I think the, the members that I coach, you know, at, at the Medan cycling track and up at the Alcudra cycling track is, I'd say people certainly 30 years of age and above, okay? Some of them are, who are, you know, leading that sedentary lifestyle, predominantly sat down, probably for eight or nine hours a day, um, if not more, because they drive to work and they drive home. They can add mm. in another hour, mm. or if you're on the metro, for instance. Um, but what they're looking for is education on how to look good, feel great, and be happy. Because they've got everything. They've got a great job, big salary, maybe a nice apartment or a townhouse. Mm. So they've got all of the bells and whistles. But what they don't have is something that you live with even when you close your eyes before you go to sleep, is the feeling of wellness, the feeling of optimum health, you know? So even now, you know, I'm 53. I'm still working till maybe 8, 8, 39, 9 p.m. most evenings, okay? But I've been up since 6, okay? Now, some people may think, well, how is that possible? But when you improve the engine, as in your body, and you feed it the good food, the fluid, the exercise, the rest, and recovery. Mother Nature does the rest. You know, I'm just, I'm just along for the ride, mm. you know. Um, so certainly here in Dubai, you know, athletes who I coach, they're looking for optimum health, and when they find it, then it's up to me then to help them and manage them and coach them and maintain it. Mm. You know, one of my, I'm not going to mention any names, but one of, my, one of my coaching clients, you know, she's 64, how many 64-year-olds are still cycling, you know, 150, 200 kilometers a week? Yeah, in okay. this heat as well. In this heat, you know. So it's important for people to know that age is just a number, okay? And, and certainly when you, when you gain optimum health, then you, just, you know, then you just have to manage it, you know, for the rest of your life. Because it's a choice. Yeah. It is a choice. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, you know, the, the saying that's thrown around, which is health is wealth. Mm -hmm. People genuinely think that it's just that if you have health, you have everything, right? Which is kind of, which is true, but it also, you've just been a testament to it. It also means if you're healthy, you can work harder, work longer, think clearer and make more wealth. And there was a really good MRI this week that came up, which was two 70-year-old men. One had been a triathlete his whole life, one had been fairly sedentary. And the MRI showed the muscle that he had. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really training as much anymore, but the muscle density... More importantly, the bone density. Bone density. And he yeah. was so much stronger. He had the, the muscle fibers were still there and the bone was so much stronger yeah. that they were saying he will live longer and he'll have less injuries and less issues. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be some issues from 
you know knees and stuff from from old, old age, age anyway but yeah. isn't that so interesting i think people don't people misinterpret that when we say you look after yourself and it will benefit you we don't just mean but you won't have any money or you won't have this you won't have that. it literally will benefit everything which i think is really interesting and i want to i want to finish with a couple of questions that i've asked all of my guests so far okay i would love a book recommendation one that the the, the, the listeners can can go and find and maybe a bit of insight into into your world or your yes journey. definitely well there's only one book for me that you know as i said to you before we started this recording um you know, there's one book for me that totally transformed and changed my life forever and probably because i was privileged to work with the author for three years wow. which is professor steve peters and the book is called the chimp paradox and if you love listening to audibles mm -hmm. please download it it'll change your life forever because many people go through their life not knowing that you have that that voice in your head okay and it's been with you all your life in fact it was probably there before you were born but it it's that voice that makes decisions for you that sometimes you suddenly think why did we do that mm. really uh, subconsciously it it just happens you know without your without your will sometimes so yeah definitely the chimp paradox, the chimp paradox you know okay. 100% um Dr. Steve Peters actually does the, the narrative. Oh, brilliant. He does the voiceover as well. So it's, it's an amazing book to listen to. Um, and then learning the skills on how to manage the inner voice. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, reading a book is one thing, but taking action is, is equally as important, yes. right? And then my last question for you is, how would you spend a full free day if you had one? A full free day, anywhere in the world? You can, have, you can do what you want. Back in time, in the future, oh, as much money as you like. What oh would you do? Um, I probably, yeah, I probably would have, yeah, I probably would have made sure my dad was there on the day that I won my medal because mm. my daughter and my mother was there. Okay, both there, but I wish my dad was there just mm. to enjoy that experience, you know, with my. My daughter, which was a great experience for her and my late mum, mm. and certainly my dad, you know, just for us together as a family, just to, yeah, just to show my dad that I was part of, part of history, you know. So yeah, really nice. A great question. Thank you. And finally, how can people find you online? Where can we? Where can we find you if you want to learn more about the cycling or the coaching? Where can we find you? Yeah. So if you, you know, either Instagram or Facebook, um, you know. Um, certainly Twitter as well. Um, but if anybody wants information, then go to markcolborn.com. Um, the information is obviously on the website, you know, for my cycling coaching, um, my conference speaking. You know, I've been a conference speaker now for 11 years and just a privilege to educate, you know, some incredible large businesses who understand what I did and how I did it, but they want to know why. You know, what's your why? Um, and certainly, you know, the new leadership program that we've launched, which is called Unleashing Peak Performance, where people get a real deep dive, you know, into the mindset of an elite athlete. Perfect. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Good luck, everyone. Mm -hmm.